Oh. Doing something. I think that was it. Excellent. Good job. <laughs> Joseph, I think I forgot to ask you if you'd uh, go outside at the beginning and uh, hold the gathering hordes who come late until you hear us singing. Is that all right? Do you know what I mean? Go, come outside now. And in a minute I'm going to uh, read... Um, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I say, when you hear us singing, you can let them in. When we start singing, yeah. Um, it's Holy Week, uh, so this is the week in which we walk with Jesus through uh, along the, the road that leads to the cross on Friday. Um, and uh, in that connection... I want to read just the first half of Romans 5, in which Paul um, gives some exposition of what's the significance uh, of what happened then. So I invite you to uh, listen and see what speaks to you. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now we have been saved by his blood, will we be saved through, through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation.
I think I'll read it again. It's such a powerful and packed passage. Um, and see if second time round, maybe something, the same thing will come home as first time round, or something different, or maybe, I don't know. See what happens. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If there's things about that that make you ask questions, then um, save them and we'll talk about that uh, a bit later on. But are there things that come home to you now um, as you listen to that passage? was a nice in one of the uh, postings in relation to the covenant I think um, somebody uh, commented that um, why would God keep forgiving people or something like that yeah why would God keep forgiving people I mean that is weird it's, it's, it's the same thing isn't it really why would God keep putting up with people Of things. On one hand, it's easy to go back to the to thinking, oh, 
once more reminded how sinful I am. But on the other hand, there's also leading me to, oh, that's why I praise, that's why I worship God, because of His grace, because of His lack of love. And uh, I was just thinking, I don't know if it's a translation thing, but I was just interested of how how different it sounds when you're not talking of salvation, but you're talking of reconciliation, mm-hmm. and how the nuances between the two. Mm-hmm. There's something mm-hmm. special about reconciliation. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. salvation, or maybe it's just because salvation has been so overused in mm-hmm. the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but reconciliation just mm-hmm. has a different impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just saying we have been saved versus we have been reconciled mm-hmm. with God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's to do with, I mean, for us, the, and not least for, for you as therapists maybe, that the awareness of breakdown in relationships um, is one that's very real to us. And so therefore the notion of somebody, of people being, recon, of being reconciled um, is the realer. Um, uh, whereas, at least in the secular world, in the world outside, tying in with what you said in a way, um, the idea of needing to be saved from God's wrath isn't kind of part of the culture in a way that it might have been in Paul's day. Yeah. You reminded me too of, um, we had in chapel, the end of last quarter, uh, a, the choir from the Walter Hoving home in El Molino, which is a home, uh, it's, it's home, but it's almost like a kind of Bible college, uh, for women who, are, who were involved with drugs or prostitution uh, or whatever, uh, and have come to know Christ, and who come there as a kind of safe place and a place to uh, get their lives together and a place to grow um, in Christ. Um, and when you, when when they came, uh, when you look at them, you can see in their faces um, the, uh, the the cost of the kind of lives uh, that they've been through. Um, and, and the first song they sang in chapel was, when I was at my worst, Jesus found me, God found me, something like that. Um, and uh, that's, what that, that's what this passage now reminds me of. Um, and uh, we see more clearly uh, that, that love of God's when you see it applied uh, to people for whom describing, describing themselves as... Um, um, sinners uh, and enemies um, and uh, weak means it means that that's true for all of us. It means something for all of us. But you can see how it means the more for some, for, for people who have known with the vividness that those women have um, God rescuing them from uh, the uh, situation they were in and Christ dying for them when that's when that's where they were. Of course, it's true for us too, in our own way. We'll sing Jesus, keep me near the cross. Um, When you get to the bottom, you'll see there's a line. (laughs) We We lose a line at the bottom, and I think it's till I reach the Golden Strand just across the river. That'll do anyway. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream. Flows from Calvary's mountain, 
In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross a trembling soul, love and mercy found me, there the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me, Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, Till I reach the golden strand Just beyond the river In the cross, in the cross Be my glory ever Till my raptured soul shall find rest Beyond the river When we were enemies, Father, you gave your son for us When we were sinners you gave your son for us. When we were weak, you gave your son for us. You gave us forgiveness. You gave us strength. You gave us reconciliation. We ask that as we study the scriptures together, you will increase our understanding of what that means. And that as we walk with Christ through this Holy Week, you will grasp us some more by its reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, here's the regular roster, so uh, if you were here last week, you can check for last week, uh, as well as checking for this week. Um, and if you weren't here last week, the, um, you need to sign this VCA form, so come and see me about that um, uh, at the end. Uh, thank you for the um, questions uh, that you formulated last week. Um, this afternoon, I, I uh, posted them on Moodle, uh, so you probably won't, most of you have picked them up yet, but they're there now anyway. Um, and so what I'm going to do is, I'm going to begin by dealing with, and, and you'll see that I put figures down the side of the page of the week that it seemed to me to be logical to uh, handle them. Um, I bumped into uh, Professor Duick uh, on the way out of chapel the other day. Um, and told him uh, that there were lots of questions about the Bible and therapy and all that that you wanted to know the answers to. And uh, he knew the answers better than I did, so would you like to come and talk about them? And he said, oh, okay, then. He was really nice about it. So um, I'm assuming, though I haven't checked it out with him, that we'll do that the last week. So that those, those sort of questions you'll find at number 10. 
Um, and, but otherwise, they are distributed through the rest of the weeks in connection with when I think I'm handling questions that kind of relate to your questions. Um, so I'm going to say something about the ones that have got a number one um, and some of the ones about number two, and we'll try and I'll try and deal with most of those one way or another this week. Um, I think that, naturally enough, uh, some of the questions you asked, which was quite early on in the, in the lecture last week, I then covered a bit in what followed. Um, but you can tell me, no, you didn't. Um, as I say, I think I did. Like the first one is, will you define hermeneutics? Well, I tried to do that. Was that all right? Um, how does the Old Testament speak to the New Testament? How does it all fit together? I gave you four ways of talking about that, and we were looking at, at each of those on the way during the quarter. Then there were quite a number of questions about, well, like, is there an accurate way of interpreting scriptures? Um, can interpretation ever be context-free? Is there any interpretation that we can truly claim to transcend time? What are the acceptable canons of interpretations? How can we understand the Bible uh, in its context when it was 2,000 years ago without PhD-level education? Um, <laughs> if there are so many different interpretations, how does one find truth? Um, how, trying to understand and study Scripture without knowing Greek or Hebrew... What do we do with competing interpretations of the same passage? How to understand different genre, Song of Songs, Revelation. Uh, when we listen to messages at church, how do we know if it's interpreted well or not? <laughs> Poor pastor. Uh, um, how do we know our interpretation of the Bible is correct if people who maintain a relationship with God come to a different conclusion for the same text, book, doctrine, etc., e.g. homosexuality? Um, where does the word hermeneutic come from? Uh, that's a nice one. It's named after the Greek god Hermes, uh, who was the god who was responsible for um, communication, uh, transmitting messages uh, on behalf of the gods. Um, how do we know if to interpret metaphorically or literally? If scripture is subject to interpretation, how do we know who gets to interpret and if they're doing it right? Um, in... It, all those are issues that we'll, carry, that we'll be talking about all through the, um, the quarter. Um, but let me say one or two general things about them now. Um, no, interpretation is never context-free. Um, it's always the people that we are who are doing the interpreting. But then that's true about every piece of interpretation, including to uh, work again with the model that I um, suggested to you last week. Uh, it's true when you're in the counselling room. Um, uh, possibly, probably, I don't know, um, uh, a, a woman will understand, uh, a woman therapist will have an Im immediate access, will have a, a, a running start to understand um, the distinctive problems of another woman, and likewise a man in relation to a man. An African-American may understand distinctively the problems of another African-American. An Asian may understand immediately, more immediately, some things that um, uh, are uh, issues for an Asian American, for an Asian. Um, and yet, I, I bet you think, I hope you think, otherwise I'm about to be proved wrong again, um, that, that in principle you reckon that with enough work, an African American man can discover how an Asian woman experiences things. Um, it, may, it may be slower. 
there may be some things that you don't misinterpret because paradoxically having a background in common may make you misinterpret as well as make you interpret. Um, and, uh, the, and, and the the business of interpreting scripture is not so different, um, perhaps not so complicated in some ways, as, in, as, as, as coming to understand another person. Um, the, the difficult thing about it that there is about scripture uh, is that uh, scripture can't answer back in the way that your clients can. Your client can't say, no, that's not right, or no, that's not quite right, or when you look at their face and you see a blank, then you know you haven't got it right, I presume. What do I know? Um, and so there is a greater, paradoxically, um, a greater capacity for empathy that you need when you're seeking to understand scripture uh, than when you're seeking to understand another person who's got the body language and is able to, to speak back. Um, on the other hand, the, the thing that you've got when you're interpreting scripture is that you're not on your own. Um, as you, broadly speaking, are uh, in the context of, uh, of the uh, counselling room. Um, and so you're, you're able, you're in a position to talk with other people about what they have, uh, what they see, go see going on in this text. Um, and uh, to see whether they have access to what this person was saying in this text that you don't have. Uh, whether they, whether they can, sh can help you to see ways in which you've skewed an understanding or ways in which you've missed things. So I don't think... I, I, got, I, I got a sort of feeling of, um, from a lot of these, from these questions um, as if you were... Um, as if you felt uh, um, a high degree of lack of confidence about interpreting and about interpreting a right and about making mistakes. Um, and so uh, I want to say, don't worry about it too much. Uh, it, it's certainly the case, you will, some, we, we, you will sometimes misinterpret scripture. We, 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 we all do, churches do. Um, but, but don't let the fact that we'll sometimes get it wrong make it seem as if the whole thing is hopeless. Most of the time, um, you'll probably get it right. And I do think, actually, that, again, maybe, as, as with um, clients, that missing out on riches that, that there are there is a less obvious issue, but a more important issue in interpretation than misinterpreting. Uh, we, we are over-concerned with misinterpreting and not concerned enough with under-interpreting. Um, and, and again, then, uh, the the possibility of reading with other people, other people whom we're physically in the company of, but also what, what commentators are is other people. Well, some of them don't feel much like people. Um, but, but, I mean, somewhere in these weird academic ivory tower guys, there was a heart beating. There was a human being. There was somebody who went home for dinner with his wife and got into trouble for being late and all those kind of things. Um, Commentators, commentaries, don't have uh, supreme authority. They aren't paper popes. The question, um, uh, where was it? There was a question somewhere, I've lost it now, about who has the right to interpret scripture. Yeah, if scripture is subject to interpretation, how do we know who gets to interpret? Uh, at one level, that's what the Reformation was about. 
the church claimed the power to interpret scripture. And the Reformation was about saying, no, um, the uh, interpretation is not dictated from on high um, by uh, church authorities. If we're not careful, what um, evangelicals do, though, is replace the pope by a paper pope, uh, common by commentators, people like professors. Um, and uh, you will uh, benefit if you treat commentators, commentaries, and professors as other human beings. I shall benefit if you treat me as a human being. Now I can think about it, shan't I? Yes. Um, no more, but no less. Don't treat them as paper popes. Uh, but do treat them as people who, here's somebody else reading scripture, maybe they'll, maybe they'll help me to see some things, maybe they'll help me to see points of which I was wrong, um, but maybe they'll be wrong. Um, they are companions on the way uh, of walking with God and seeking to understand scripture. Um, don't be inhibited by not having a PhD. And don't be inhibited by not understanding Greek and Hebrew. Um, there is, I don't know, 5%, 1% that you'll miss by not having Greek or Hebrew. Even 10%. But that means that 90 or 95 or 99% you'll get. Uh, so again, uh, don't, don't, be, don't be inhibited um, by that. Uh, th there, are, there are questions about um, uh, how it is that... Um, doing academic study of scripture kind of makes it grow cold. Uh, I've left those to be ones that we'll um, come back to in, uh, at the end with, uh, with Professor Duick. Um, but, but a significance about that that occurs to me now is, remember that guys who do PhDs and write commentaries are by definition people who've been in this cold academic ivory tower thing um, for years. So what do they know? Um, in some ways, if you're in... Um, if you carry on in living touch with as ordinary people, with the potential of being of carrying on in living touch with Christ, um, you'll 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 get it in a way that they may have forgotten why they were stuck. That's certainly true about commentators. It looks as if they've forgotten why they were studying Scripture. Um, maybe you haven't forgotten. Um, Any of those questions anybody wants to come back to me at, over, with, by, for, concerning. Okay, some of them, the other ones that I put down for um, week two, um, I will come back to um, before we break today. Um, Well, now I'm, on page, I'm going to be on page 21, um, uh, where it says at the top, uh, Scripture is witness to what God has done. Page 21, Scripture is witness to what God has done. Um, and I'm talking about one, one way of thinking about Scripture doctrinally, um, in terms of a doctrine of Scripture. Uh, and, I'm, and I summed, that, summed it up last time in talking about four ways of looking at Scripture as um, doctrinally. Uh, in terms of a witnessing tradition. Um, and this seems to me to be a 
useful way to think particularly about the narrative history story material in scripture um, when we come to think about authority and inspiration then other kinds of ways of thinking about doctrine and scripture I'll talk about some more um, but they don't correspond so well with the nature of um, the narrative, the history, the story in scripture and that's pretty significant because as I've said at the top of the page there underneath the first heading most of scripture is narrative and therefore you need a way of thinking uh, about the nature of scripture um, that uh, corresponds to, reflects, works with its own nature. And I read last week the opening verses of Luke that put us on the track of, of uh, some ways of thinking about it, where Luke says, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, and there in that verse are those two ideas of tradition, of something being handed on, and of eyewitnesses, on the basis of the existence of eyewitnesses, and on the basis of it being handed on from these eyewitnesses, I said, I could do that. I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you've been instructed. Luke is the writer but Luke isn't the person who is the eyewitness uh, and uh, Luke isn't the person who personally does the passing down. Luke is the person who ensures that um, Theophilus and any other reader uh, can be sure about the um, truth of what he's writing but he does that on the basis of what as it were lies behind uh, Luke himself. Uh, the fact that there were eyewitnesses and the fact that the eyewitnesses saw that, saw that things were handed down. Um, John, at the end of his Gospel, gives um, a parallel account um, of the function of his Gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Um, and uh, I won't read the, the, uh, the Luke Acts and 1, 1 Corinthians passages again because I read them last time. Uh, they are further examples of ways in which the New Testament talks about uh, the significance of eyewitness, of the eyewitnesses seeing things and passing them on um, uh, so that somebody like Paul, who again isn't an eyewitness of the gospel uh, events, is in a position to write things on the basis of the fact that there were eyewitnesses and they did pass things on. This, they, this way of speaking is one that has its background in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, talks uh, about witnessing the things that God has done and about setting up um, means of remembering them, memorial devices, so that you will not forget the things that God has done. Um, in the context of the exile... Uh, in uh, Isaiah 43, the prophet is involved in challenging uh, the Judean people to, to, to believe in Yahweh, to keep believing or to come back to believing in Yahweh as the real God, over against the claims made by their gods for the Babylonians. Bring forth the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. This is a kind of paradoxical thing about these Judeans. They're supposed to have seen things, but they haven't seen them. 
that all the nations gather together, let the peoples assemble. Who among them declared this and foretold to us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to justify them. Let them hear and say it's true. You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, beside me there is no saviour. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, says Yahweh. The thing about Yahweh is that Yahweh was um, adept at saying, I'm going to do X. And then doing it. And then saying, you see, I did it. Uh, and the, uh, the Judeans are in a position to testify to that, to witness to that. They are people who, or at least their fathers, grandfathers and whatnot, heard somebody like Isaiah declaring what Yahweh was going to do. Now they know that Yahweh did it, and therefore they're in a position to give testimony to it. They're not, they're not like somebody who after 9-11 says, well, this is what it meant. They're like somebody who before an event like that says it's going to happen and this is what it means. And so uh, such people are in a position afterwards to, to testify to what they've seen. Uh, you get the same dynamic uh, in the Exodus story as in the exile story when um, in the, that's, the, that's the Exodus uh, 6 passage uh, where God tells the Israelites, tells Moses what he's going to do, um, then does it, and then afterwards the Israelites are in a position to give testimony to it. Now, um, a key way of uh, looking then at, at, uh, at, at the scriptures is as eyewitness testimony that's been passed down. Uh, and that's key to it because of this narrative nature um, of scripture. And uh, the fact that most of, most of scripture is narrative, as I put on the sheet, reflects the nature of Christian faith. It shows why these scriptures have got a significance that doesn't attach to the Book of Mormon or to the Quran. And it shows why there are limits to the insight you can see in a movie. The authority of scripture issues from the nature of the gospel. The gospel, that is, is not a statement like God is love. Nor um, is the gospel um, a declaration that um, uh, you must love your enemies. Both those things are true, but they aren't the gospel. A gospel, by definition, is a thing that means good news. It's God's spell, it's, 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 the, it's the evangel, it's the euangelion. The word means an announcement of something good. The nature of Christian faith is not to be an, a collection of theological statements like God is love, or a collection of ethical statements uh, like uh, love your enemies, though both of them flow from the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel is to be a narrative statement. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him does not perish, should not perish but have everlasting life. The kind of things that Paul says uh, in that passage in Romans. And that's why uh, the Bible has a significance for um, Christian faith and for the world. As I say, that the Book of Mormon or the Quran couldn't have. There are lots of insights that you can find there. They don't have to be demonic, those other religious books. But they can't tell you the story of what God was doing in Israel in that, those events that came to a climax in sending Christ to die for us. Um, it's the fact that scripture uh, preserves uh, the witness to what God did 
in Israel and in Christ that had been passed down that is the reason why it has um, the authority that it has. Scripture is witness. Um, now, uh, Karl Barth used to talk about Scripture as being witness. Um, when I was a student, Karl Barth was a bad guy. But nowadays, Karl Barth's a good guy, isn't he? Yeah. Now, if these things change, he'll probably be a bad guy again in another 20 years' time. Um, how cynical. Is that cynical? Yes, it is cynical. I'll withdraw it. Um, it was naughty. But, but the thing I said was true. That is, it was the case that um, when I was a student, Bart was a bad guy, because evangelicals thought Bart was, you know, a bad thing. Uh, and then they came to see there was a lot to be said uh, for Bart. Uh, but um, uh, like everybody else, Bart wasn't infalli infallible. And the way that Bart talked about witness uh, has got a regrettable side to it, because Bart was inclined to say that Scripture is only witness. Um, and uh, because it was, uh, it, it's talking about it as witness, is to say that it's fallible. And quite often, when witness talk is used theologically, that's true. Different faiths give diff different witness to the truth, or something of that kind. Um, those emphases um, don't stem from the way Scripture talks about witness. The way Scripture uses this language about witness is not to say it's fallible but to say, therefore, it's really reliable. Somebody who knows what they're talking about uh, is telling you about these things. Scripture's witness and as tradition. Now, paragraph two on my sheet. Um, by definition, then, if you're talking about Scripture's witness, uh, then witness talks about things that have happened. Uh, <coughs> And witnesses have to be open to being cross-examined. But the cross-examining of witnesses need, needs to be done in an open-minded way. Now that's part of the problem uh, for us in studying theology in the context of modernity and post-modernity. That, uh, that some of the kind of assumptions of what counts as cross-examining witnesses, what counts as historical study, are ones that are inclined to rule out certain sorts of conclusions before you've actually listened to the witnesses. There are presuppositions about historical criticism, about historical investigation. And some of those presuppositions are fine. Um, for instance, the, the very fact that the, the very conviction that the investigating of Scripture matters um, is a um, positive presupposition. Uh, history indeed, is, is, is very significant for understanding truth. That was a basic conviction of modernity, and it's something which has um, understanding that's come, that come out of the Bible from behind it. But another presumption of historical criticism, which is kind of shakier, um, is that uh, inevitably uh, the work of historical criticism was done with people who work, is done by people who work with Western values. Because the people who developed it were Western people. Um, and so there are certain aspects uh, of the scriptural story that we're offended by because of the culture out of which we come. So a story about Abraham nearly offering Isaac or a story about the slaughter of the Canaanites um, are stories that we find offensive and our, uh, in, our, in our culture uh, and 
that enters in those, that kind of presupposition enters into the way that we cross-examine the, cross the witnesses. Another one would be um, our assumption that it's the individual who counts. There was a whole um, scheme for understanding the significance of the development of thinking. Not just the development of thinking, but the development of revelation, if you like. What God was doing in the Old Testament that was based on that assumption that went something like this. In, in primitive Old Testament times, they only... Um, believed really in the existence, the reality of the community and, and of com com community responsibility. They didn't really understand um, uh, the notion of individual responsibility. And then along came Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they were the great breakthrough into a recognition of individual responsibility. Um, and that's the thing that triumphed from then on. Um, and that's great because that's the truth, isn't it? No. Uh, because maybe in a postmodern context we're more aware... Uh, at least in theory, I don't know whether we are in practice, but in theory, uh, we're more aware of the importance of the community. Uh, we still all live in our own individual little rooms, and we don't want anybody else deciding anything for us. Thank you very much. But in theory, we're more community-oriented. Um, but, but that assumption about, it, about um, the essential um, nature of being human is an individual thing uh, was the, is then part of the kind of assumptions the... <coughs> the world view with which historical criticism was done. Historical criticism was done with Western values. Um, and uh, it was done with some assumptions about uh, the, the way in which uh, history works out. Uh, for instance, the kind of things that can happen um, in the past uh, are the kind of things that, that, that happen now. So when you talk about um, a guy rising from the dead, well, that obviously isn't true, because we don't see that happening now, and we use what happens now as a criterion for evaluating what happened back then. Or we know about the link between cause and effect. We know that every, every um, uh, effect has a cause. And so when somebody claims that uh, a, a miracle has happened, uh, an, effect, uh, an effect that doesn't have a cause, that doesn't, isn't linked into the cause-effect nexus, uh, then we find it uh, natural to reckon that that's um, a fairy tale. That never happened. Some, uh, some of the problems uh, that you have come across in doing historical study of Old Testament and New Testament issue from the fact that historical criticism, as it's been practiced in the West in the last 200 years, is affected by some things within the culture um, which, which, which uh, predetermine what kind of results can, can, can come. Not all of them, but some of them. E even where that's not um, an issue, even if you can um, bracket, uh, if you, even if you can uh, cleanse the way that historical criticism works, you're still going to find that you're left with some questions about things that actually happened. Uh, unless you presuppose um, that uh, Genesis tells you, um, it, as the inspired word of God, is only going to tell you things that actually happened. If you use critical methods in order to investigate the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, then you're going to, you're going to end up saying, well, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think it's like this... This is my, my opinion. Uh, I think there is good evidence for reckoning 
that in, that in basic outline, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph um, are factual. Um, but I can't move from that um, to, the, to, to saying these are stories that tell you what um, the uh, camcorder would have caught if it had been there. Uh, it, uh, and so now that, that doesn't worry me because I'm happy for uh, God to have inspired in Scripture stories that combine factuality with w the use of the imagination and so on. But it's difficult to know um, where is the boundary, where is the line between things that happened and things that were produced by imagination. Now again, that doesn't bother me, though I know um, through talking with classes um, that it often does bother people. And we find ourselves then having, as I put on the sheet, uh, to live with trust um, and with ambiguity. Um, and that came up somewhere in one of the uh, postings. No, no, it's in one of the questions. What do you do with the, with it when the study of archaeology or the study of uh, science and, and science? Um, seems to discredit what we read. Uh, last summer, uh, I had a visit from um, a rabbi and his sidekick um, who wanted to talk. Uh, he, he belongs to the works in the Simon Wiesenthal Center in, uh, on the west side uh, and wanted to talk about how um, we teach the Old Testament at Fuller. Um, and we had a very interesting conversation. But um, at some point, and I think we, perhaps we must have discussed uh, the questions about what you do with the uh, historical questions, because at one point he, he said to me, supposing it could be proven that the, that, um, supposing there was, yeah, people reckoned that they proved that the Exodus, I think that was, this was his example, that the Exodus never happened, what would you do? Um, uh, and I think I, well, I think I said to him first, um, well, fortunately, I don't think they'll ever do that, partly because it's, you, it's very difficult to prove something didn't happen in that kind of way. So it, it's a kind of, it feels an artificial question. Um, but then, uh, if, if I try to think my way into it being a real question, then I suppose I'd have to go back. I think I'd already said that, uh, as far as I was concerned, the basic historical value of those stories was essential to their theological message. Um, and the reason for that is the basis upon which Israel believes that Yahweh is God, as I implied uh, a few minutes ago, is that God says he's going to do things, then God does them, then God says, you see I did it, now go and tell people about it. But if God didn't, if that, if that never happened, if God didn't say, I'm going to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, then, bring, then uh, bring them out, then say, you see, I did it, this is what it means, if that never happened, then the idea that Yahweh is God has uh, its um, heart taken out of it. It has taken away from it the reason why you believe it, but also actually the content of the belief, because the belief is that Yahweh is the God, is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. If Yahweh didn't bring Israel out of Egypt, um, we don't know who Yahweh is. Yahweh's self-definition disappears. So the guy said to me, the rabbi said to me, okay, supposing it was proved that God didn't bring the Israelites out of Egypt, what would you do? Um, and I said, well, I suppose I'd have to rethink that logic I just talked about. 
I'd have to ask myself whether I could still keep believing in Yahweh, even though it turned out that Yahweh hadn't brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And he said, I wouldn't. That is, that is he, will ca- he would carry on believing in Yahweh as the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, even if, as it were, it was said that that had been totally, disp- totally disproved. And I felt rebuked, really, because uh, I think probably he was right. Um, and uh, that to maintain that conviction, to refuse to be overwhelmed with regard to that conviction was probably um, appropriate. That would be his way uh, of living with a situation when the study of archaeology or science um, seems to discredit what we read. It, it, it doesn't usually come to that, though. It may discredit or seem to discredit particular um, bits of interpretation. Um, and uh, it may be that we do have to live sometimes with ambiguity and uncertainty. But at that point, it's important, again, that we recognize the relatively small scale of that, the proportion of that. As with, as with the questions about right and wrong interpretation, um, uh, the, it's easy to get the, the difficult points out of proportion. Um, and uh, we, we shouldn't get the points at which archaeology raises a problem out of proportion in relation to there being lots and lots of the Old Testament, for instance, uh, where archaeology doesn't raise a problem. And if that's the case, then, we can, we can live with some uncertainty in a particular area if we've got a lot of uncertainty, a lot of certainty in another area. This is a slightly different example, but, and, and it, it, I'll put it down on the sheet for a different week. But somebody asked... Um, Did Jesus actually say something similar to the I am statements? Or was that theology there by the church through the Holy Spirit when the Gospel of Job was written? Did Jesus really not say all the red words? And then just kidding, this person said in brackets. I'm not sure I believe them about the just kidding bit. But it's a convenient example. Uh, uh, okay, let's come clean. I don't think Jesus said the I am sayings. Uh, but, um, but, I'm, but I'm entirely happy with the notion, and I'm entirely happy with the notion that the Holy Spirit guided the church into expressing the significance of the kind of things that Jesus did say and do in those I am sayings. In that sense, the I am sayings are true. Um, but but if, you, if you're not happy with that, um, then okay, but that's only, a, that's only a bit of the New Testament. There's an awful lot, of the, uh, awful lot of things in the Gospels where you don't have to worry about it, whether it's the kind of thing that Jesus could have said. Don't let the, uh, the areas where there are some questions that you can't see your way through be overwhelming. Possibly it's the case that during your time at seminary, there was a question or two that seemed really difficult, maybe totally impossible at this moment, and then... A couple of quarters later, you, you could see your way through that question. Has anybody had that experience? Oh, somebody was nodding, thank goodness, because if you'd all said, shaking your heads, I'd have been in a terrible mess. Well, it's a, mod- a moderate mess, anyway. Um, there are, there are, for me, certainly, and, but obviously I've been playing this game for longer than you have, I've gone through that quite a number of times. When feminism was invented, uh, that seemed to raise terrible problems for the Bible. But gradually... I managed to be able to think my way around um, the questions and, and see how to handle them. And when you've gone through that two or three times, it means that the next time you come across um, some issue, um, 
then uh, you can say to yourself, well, okay, I've been this way before. I can't see my way through this one at the moment, but probably six months I'll be able to. Just relax, just bracket that one, leave it on one side. Maybe the problem with seminary is that, the, that all those get thrown at you at once uh, and you don't have chance to kind of digest and work with them uh, one at a time. Maybe that's, uh, that's part of the problem with seminary. The factuality involved in witness. Number three on that sheet, page 21, where it says at the bottom, Scripture is pointing us to what God has done. Now, uh, I, it, it's, it's, it puzzled me for a long time, but I think I'm coming to understand it. Uh, why it was that when, when, I, when I'm say, teaching Pentateuch and I send people off to read uh, stories in Genesis, horrifying stories in Genesis, um, they come back appalled and want to know, why are those kind of stories in the Bible? Um, and, and I didn't understand the question for a while um, until I realised that the underlying assumption of the questioner is that the reason why you have stories in the Bible is to tell people how to live or to tell people how not to live. Um, and if that's the case, then having, them, having those stories there is weird, particularly because Genesis doesn't keep saying, so you shouldn't behave like that. Or, alternative, or alternatively, so you should behave like that. And one of the reasons why Genesis doesn't do that is that its presupposition is different. It's not telling you these stories in order to give you examples, um, or at least it's very often, it's most of the time, not telling you stories in order to give you examples of how to behave or how not to behave. Um, but that assumption, I think, is deeply ingrained in our culture and is difficult to get out of. But it's simply... An assumption, which the very nature of the phenomena suggests is probably wrong. Sometimes it's providing examples, and sometimes the New Testament quotes it in that, in, in that connection, but that's not the main thing it's there for. One reason why it's not the main thing it's there for is that we don't need uh, examples of how, what not to do and what to do. That isn't our problem. Not knowing what to do or what not to do is not actually our problem as human beings. Sometimes um, stories, uh, say in Genesis, are illustrating how God regularly relates to people. But they are then about how God relates to us. That is, there are we who are the kind of people um, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are. Abraham who's a wimp. Um, Jacob uh, who's a deceiver. Um, Joseph who kind of does his best and ends up being a bit stupid by getting everybody enslaved uh, in Egypt. Well, life's like that, you know, we, we, we are people like that. And one great thing about the telling of these stories is to say that God was involved with these people. God didn't cast Abraham off because he was a bit of a wimp, or cast J Jacob off because he was a deceiver, or cast Joseph off because he made a cataclysmic um, mistake. God uh, works with us as we are, um, and that's monumentally, mon monumentally encouraging. But that's not the most significant thing or reason why uh, we've got these, uh, why story is dominated by narrative. It's that, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's that scripture is relating what God did. The nature of scripture, as I put in the subheading there, is to point us to what God has done. It's relate, and it's relating what God did once for all. Now I've just discovered last week uh, that this is also 
an aspect of an explanation for why people get so worked up about the Canaanites um, that I hadn't understood before. Because I was talking um, to a student who was saying that, um, that the reason why it was such a problem that God did these things to the Canaanites was that it, it got you in trouble with the Old Testament equivalent to what would Jesus do? The Old Testament equivalent to what would Jesus do is what would Yahweh do? Whatever Jesus did, whatever Yahweh did, that's what you should go and do. So if Yahweh went around slaughtering the Canaanites, then you should do that. Well, the whole kind of logic of that is actually um, not logic. Um, because the, the story, a lot of the time, Old Testament and New Testament, isn't telling you about what Yahweh did or what Jesus did in order for you to go and imitate it. It's telling you about what Yahweh did and what Jesus did. Well, precisely because you can't go and imitate it. Because it is once for all. It was actually there in that passage um, from Romans, though I'd forgotten that. That wasn't the reason why, why we read it. But it's an expression that comes a number of times in the New Testament. And I can't see it there. I thought it was there somewhere. Oh, well, never mind. Um, uh, the New Testament, <laughs> believe me, trust me, the New Testament from time to time talks about the fact that God did what he did in Christ once and for all. Hebrews uses the expression uh, a number of times. When Jesus died for us, that wasn't in order that we should follow his example by going and dying for other people. I mean, in a sense it was. There is a sense in which we, need to take, we have to take up our cross and so on. But the essential nature of what Christ achieved for us was something that only Christ could do and that he did once for all. Nobody else needed to do it. Once Christ had done it, it only needed to be done once. And likewise, the story of what God was doing through Genesis and Exodus and Joshua and so on was something that God was doing. It was part of the once for all story of the way that God was setting about uh, the redemption of the world. And so the nature of scriptures of witnessing tradition does sometimes point us to, to um, examples of things that God does or that people do uh, for us to follow the example. Sometimes it illustrates for us ways that God always relates to us. But we need to remember that in a way the most important thing about the scriptural story is precisely when, God, uh, when you're being told about things that God did that are never going to happen again. That the, um, the, gospel, the gospel work that God did was done once for all in New Testament times. And that's part of the answer to the question, uh, to one of the questions that was um, in the list you made last week. Why are there heavy, why are there heavy duty miracles in the early church, but not in later church experience? Um, now, part of the answer is to do with, um, well, part of the answer, part of the answer, part of the response to that is to query the question. Um, that is, there have been contexts in which heavy duty miracles have been done. But it's not surprising if there were special uh, things going on uh, in gospel times because that was when God was doing this once-for-all thing. But I don't want to be... Um, I don't want to fall into the trap um, of agreeing with what was the traditional Reformed view that miracles were confined to biblical times because God uh, has done amazing things in other contexts since. 
But that there should be some clustering of amazing things that God did then is not surprising because that was the kind of outer penumbra of the once-for-all amazing thing that God was doing in Christ. Um, over the page, I'm going to stop talking for five minutes uh, while you think about those questions at the top of the next page. Um, do you agree that Christian faith is basically a gospel about something God did once for all? Is that a scriptural idea? Is that a good enough explanation for the special status of the scriptures? Can we investigate the historicity of scripture in an open-minded fashion? Can we do that and still trust the scriptures? If the scriptures are centrally about something God did once for all, does that make them irrelevant to us? Um, I invite you to think about those questions for two minutes and then talk about them uh, with the guys next to you uh, for three minutes. If you want to talk about something else, uh, that's fine. Well, preferably not if it's the baseball game, but something else that's to do with the subject, then do that. So two minutes just to think about that, and then I'll tell you, invite you to talk to the people next to you. Well, the naughty boys in the front row already want to be talking to each other, so let everybody talk to each other for a couple of three minutes. Now they've set you an example. Oh, he's going to turn his back on me now. Oh, sorry, got it. That's fine. No, 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 it's a lovely back. That's fine. You can. Yeah, yeah, quite rightly, too. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Or you want to do No, you talk to them. That's a good idea. If they don't mind.
Okay, anybody want to say anything about any of those? Anyone want to ask anything or comment? Okay. Um, on page 22, just underneath those questions, it says witness to one story. Um, and here's one way of seeing the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament, which I talked about a bit last time. Um, the Old Testament is Act 1, the New Testament is Act 2, uh, so you need to understand each act in the light of the other. Um, let me, uh, in that connection, pick up one of the questions from last week, um, which was... Taking the Old Testament as a whole, what would the first century Jews expect the Messiah to be, and why didn't they recognize Jesus? Um, one or two comments on that. Uh, one is that, that there isn't a huge amount in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Uh, it's not a big deal as far as the Old Testament is concerned. Uh, it, and this is weird uh, for Christians, because... Uh, when Christ came and he was the Messiah and he's the fulfillment of what God had been doing, well, you'd have thought there would be messianic prophecies all over the Old Testament, but there simply aren't. There was um, the... The way that people understood the Old Testament, as it were, there would be more messianic prophecy than... It was more, more messianic than it used to be. Because, uh, for instance, um, the Psalms talk often about the king... When you haven't got a king, what do you do with those psalms that talk about the king? Well, they come to be about the king that God will give you one day. Um, and, and, and that was a living expectation in New Testament uh, times. What people would be expecting about the Messiah on that basis, then I think you can get as well as, uh, as anywhere uh, from the way that Mary talks um, when she goes to see Elizabeth, when she says in Luke 1, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked with favour on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So Mary's assumption is that um, God is in the midst of fulfilling his promises to Abraham, uh, putting down the powerful, um, which would especially mean the Roman Empire, um, and um, lifting up the lowly, that is Israel. Uh, and Zechariah, her cousin, put it in similar terms in the same chapter. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked, with fa- looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty saviour for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors, and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And he's making the same assumptions, gives you the same picture as Mary, though he adds um, forgiveness of sins to what he talks about. Now, um, what Jesus then actually did didn't match very well with what what either Mary or Zechariah said. Um, And uh, if therefore it didn't quite match what Mary um, and Zechariah said, um, then it's not surprising it wouldn't match what other Jews were expecting. So John the Baptist, you'll remember, uh, sends to Jesus and asks, um, are you the one that we were to look for? Is there going to be somebody else? And Jesus sends back a message about how people have been healed and whatnot, which is totally irrelevant, because the Messiah wasn't supposed to heal anybody. Uh, so, the, as it were, the problem was that the, that the kind of thing that Jesus came to do overlapped with the promises that God had given about the Messiah. Um, but there were lots, quite a chunk of what the, the Messiah was supposed to do was not obviously what Jesus was doing. And there were other things that Jesus focused on that was, was what the Messiah wasn't supposed to do. So it's not surprising that when, when, Peter, um, when Jesus asks the disciples what, to make of Jesus, what they make of him, and Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus says, oh, don't go and tell anybody that. Um, now, he couldn't say, I'm not the Messiah. That wouldn't have been true. But simply to accept the description Messiah is to give a false impression of the kind of thing that he was on about. Um, in a lot of respects the kind of work that the Messiah needed to do is the thing that we still look forward to Jesus doing when he comes again but you can see how he didn't match the expectations that people had got as it were a right to on the basis of the scriptures and that's one answer to the question why they didn't recognise him you couldn't blame them for not recognising him only in light uh, of cross and resurrection, when people look back and they were forced to rethink the whole thing, did they come to see, uh, or did some of them come to see um, what Jesus was about? Um, there were other reasons why the leadership, it's, it's a different question about the, the leadership in particular didn't recognise him. Um, the, 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 maybe partly the way he talked about the, uh, well, particularly the way he talked about the temple, that, that he was... Um, 
a threat to uh, the, the nature of, um, uh, of what the Jewish people were about. So I think one can see uh, reasons why um, the ministry of Jesus wasn't one that led people immediately to recognize him. And, and even after cross and resurrection, well, all the more after cross and resurrection, there was a monumental reframing of people thinking, people's thinking that needed to be, doing, to be done um, if they were going to accept him as, uh, as Messiah. Um, in the Witness to One Story, a chunk uh, on page 22, where I've mentioned the Old Testament is Act 1, the New Testament is Act 2, um, I've uh, given, given examples uh, there of the part of the story is of, uh, of a story that goes from Exodus to exile to Christ. Um, and thinking about the rela- Exodus and exile in one ways is, in some ways, is Act 1 and Act 2. Uh, Exodus in Christ is, in another way is Act 1 and Act 2. Uh, and if you're to think about liberation theology, the kind of emphasis that's been placed on that where it's taken the extras as a model for what God does um, for, the, for God's work uh, in the world, a problem with that is taking, the, taking Act 1 out of the context of Act 2. And that leads me into then saying something about typology. Um, typology is, uh, when the New Testament comes to talk about Jesus' um, act of salvation, it uses images from the Old Testament. It, it talks about it as redemption. Or even talks about it as an exodus, that Jesus, an act of deliverance that Jesus was going to accomplish. The way in which the New Testament guys came to understand what Jesus was about was by taking realities and images from the Old Testament and using them to understand what God was doing in Jesus. Uh, and that's what's involved in typology, which then has these three characteristics. First, typology assumes that when God acts, God's acts are consistent and so the second time that God acts, it's going to be consistent uh, with and similar to the first time. So God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage. God brings us out of bondage um, in Christ. There's a parallel between the two. A second thing about typology is that when God does things the second time, he can't resist the temptation to do them better. <laughs> so um, the act of deliverance that brought people out of Egypt was... Um, out of physical bondage, uh, the act of deliverance that Christ achieved was one that brought them out of spiritual bondage. The third thing about typology is the first act is literal, the second is metaphorical. The first act becomes a symbol of the second act. So when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, well, he literally brought them out from somewhere and he literally brought them out of bondage. They were slaves. Uh, When what God achieved was metaphorically bringing people out from something and metaphorically bringing them out um, of bondage. Uh, In the um, worship of the temple, there were literal priests uh, offering literal sacrifices in a stone and um, mortar temple. Uh, When Hebrews comes to talk about the nature of God's act of salvation in Christ then it will talk about Christ as a priest and as a sacrifice offering, uh, offered in a temple, but all those are true metaphorically, not literally. 
Christ wasn't literally a priest. He couldn't be. He belonged to the wrong tribe. His death wasn't literally a sacrifice. And he didn't literally go into a temple. But those uh, literal realities of the Old Testament come to provide images with which to understand um, the, uh, the act of Christ. Uh, Hebrews is then um, the great repository of typological thinking um, in, in the New Testament. Um, but um, uh, the New Testament didn't invent typological thinking. That's the, the, the relationship between the exodus and, the, and uh, the return from the exile is already thought of in typological terms within the Old Testament. So God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. That becomes a type for when God brings the Israelites out of Babylon. Um, and both of those bringing outs then, uh, as it were, happen again in what God achieves in Christ. Uh, he, uh, typology is then used in very imaginative ways uh, by expositors. So they see the different colours um, of the curtains um, in the um, sanctuary that the Israelites made in the wilderness. Um, and the colours of the curtains were purple and red and blue. And purple stands for Christ's deity, uh, uh, kingship. And red stands for Christ's blood. And blue must stand for something else, but I've forgotten what it is. Um, you, can, you can go into all sorts of detail with typology. Um, and um, maybe say edifying things. But it's all kind of rather speculative, and I wouldn't want to uh, build doctrine on it. Um, but it is a, a significant means of interpretation within the New Testament in order uh, for them to be able to use the Old Testament to help them to understand what Christ was about. Okay? Go away. Come back. Twenty. Twenty minutes.
Um, what is another example of once for all behavior other than Jesus dying once for all? Well, the, the Joshua and the Canaanites, I'm saying oh, is so. an example. How so? Oh, and, mean, how and do the I fact know? that we can't, well, we no, wouldn't the, imitate Well, no, not in that we wouldn't, but nobody ever, Israel never did. The Israelites never never tried to do that, thing, that kind of thing again. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, yeah. okay, I understand. Yeah. Your comment on liberation theology, just wanted to make sure I got it right. Did you say it was focusing too much on Act 1? Yeah, yeah. Not too much consideration right. on Act 2? That's right, yeah. That's right, yeah. So are you saying that it's bad interpretation? <laughs> or at least it's incomplete in its form? Uh, yes. Okay. Incomplete. Okay, now I need to figure out how to make that complete then. <laughs> I'm in such a fan, too. <laughs> well, you need to take it by... Um, by the exile and by the cross, okay. which doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily totally undo it, as as those songs of Mary and Zechariah show, uh -huh. but it does mean that you need to it needs to be broadened out. Okay. Yeah, I'm realizing a lot of my a lot of where I get stuck anyway. It, it's not so much that. I know what my professors will say about a text, but it's like, how can I think about a text more? Mm. Mm. It's mm. like the foundations of how to think of text. Mm. Uh, you, just go, you just go grow, don't worry about it, relax. <laughs> I was telling them, after this, I won't be welcome back at my church. This is too <laughs> liberal. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that problem. There is that problem.